The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.theweightcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. I, one thing I want to ask you, and I, I know I've asked you this in the past, Colette, but Kathy, why do you do this? And and I know this is a this is a, this is a crazy question, but let me let me verbalize. <laughs> Colette's losing it. Torment. Let me torment. Yeah. Kathy, give your to, to kick your Colette's answer. butt. But well, tell me. What does fly fishing do for you in your words is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. What, it, what does it do for me in my words? Keeps me centered. I've been doing this for so long. I've done different types. I've done different levels. I've done salt water. I've done freshwater. I've done, I, I you know, done flies and I got my boat to get, it's the whole package. It's my passion. I can't imagine myself not fishing. Even if I end up in a wheelchair somewhere, I'm going to be fishing. I, I, it just, it fills my soul. Somebody said to me once, not too long ago, when's the last time you were out fishing? I said, well, I've been so darn busy. I've been doing many things that you need to go fishing. <laughs> we we yeah. highly recommend meditating medication. You go fishing. You can go out there and get some fishing. <laughs> You're so much better to deal with after you've been out. <laughs> that really bothered me. And I think, God, do I turn into like Dracula or something when uh, I'm not fishing? I can so relate to that. I, sorry, I'll let you keep going. But somebody on the show <laughs> said to me, it's not a need to or a want to it's a have to yeah you know? i'm getting cranky because it's coming into november and i'm like damn it i'm gonna have to put the boat away pretty soon even if i am freezing my butt off but that just flips me over to a different you know i gotta clean lines and fix yeah. rods and start get ready for the next year and we're looking forward to it or maybe go fishing in a tropical destination which is really nice or mm-hmm. but it's, it's it's too much in my soul now to never fish again. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on the Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us this time around. And we have a couple of gals on the show today that uh, I'm really excited to chat with. Um, first off, Colette Stroud is a return guest to the podcast, competitive fly fisher. Uh, we're going to chat with Colette today and also Kathy Ruddick. Uh, fly fisher, fly tying instructor, uh, trip organizer. Kathy's been 
at this game a long time, and uh, I can remember going back to your guys' fly shop back in, geez, I don't even know when that was. I don't want to say. But, um, ladies, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Mark. Good to meet you. Likewise. Great to be here. So... I'm going to, at first, Colette, just because you and I have already had, like, one show, and if you haven't caught it, uh, look into our uh, our catalog of shows. We had uh, Colette on, and we learned all about her history, her fly fishing story. Um, full disclosure, we're going to talk today a lot about the, uh, well, the First Ladies Nationals that just happened, and then, of course, prepping for uh, the World Fly Fishing Championships coming up next year, uh, next fall in the Kamloops region. Kathy, I want to get to know you a little bit because I, I, I know you're super busy out there, um, spend a lot of time on the water. Can you tell our listeners um, kind of how you came to discover fly fishing? Where did it all start for you in the first place? Well, I really think about it. It started with me and my mom. I used to live in Maple Ridge, then known as Haney. And um, my mom used to work and it was just her and I. And on Saturday mornings, we used to go down to the Alouette River and catch fish. And we were using spinning gear at the time. I wasn't into fly fishing, but I couldn't have been probably seven, eight years old. And I can still remember being absolutely fascinated by catching a fish, and it was just a small trout out, out of the Alouette River. I could see this fish come up and take it and swim away, and I think it was a little dick knight spoon or something, and you brought it in, and we let it go, and that was in the days of not letting them go, and I was just fascinated by it, and um, I spent many subsequent weekends with my mom, and we that would be our time. We would go down and, and uh, just have a um, oh, like a walk and wait. And of course, it was a big adventure when you're that old. But um, I really got passionate about it. And then there was a club in Maple Ridge called the Dogwood Fly Fishing Club, which is still very much in operation. And uh, a family became involved with the Dogwoods and we would go on these outings. And um, we went to all sorts of places and, and have fly tying classes and I remember one of the biggest outings we went on, we went to Loon Lake and <laughs> I was tying flies at the time and the men went in the boats and took off to the other end of the lake and my mom and I were sitting there and I was by a picnic table tying God knows what for a fly and my mom and I said, mom, can I go fishing? No, you can't go fishing with them. Well, why can't I go fishing? You can't go fishing with them. But there was a boat and I said, well, can I fish here? And she said, you can go from that rock to that tree in front of the campsite. So I can vividly remember her staring at me and watching me, drumming her fingers on the picnic table, watching me go back and forth, trolling this fly because I didn't know how to fly cast and catching all these fish. And they were probably just stalked. But I was so proud of myself tying this fly and <laughs> catching these fish. And the men came back from the big hunt. And uh, they said, no, we got totally skunked. And uh, I think I, I did kill a few fish at that point. And they said, she did what? So it was it was a little badge of honor for a kid, you know, to be very <laughs> proud of it. It just, it just went from there. It just snowballed and it became my life. That's awesome. And it truly has, hasn't it? I mean, I, I mean, ever since you had that, shop in was it Canada Way it was kind of for some reason I wanted to say it was kind of the boundary of Vancouver and Burnaby was that right Ruddix good good memory the, the infancy of the the store actually was in um a little hamlet I guess you want to call it State Falls and State Falls is located north 
um, the Dooney trunk um, between Maple Ridge and Mission. Mm. And my, my husband, Malcolm, um, mm. his family lived up there. And Malcolm was really into fishing as well and, and got his dad into it. And they, they had a barn, a huge barn. And they took one corner of the barn um, and started bringing in furs and feathers from all over the world because you couldn't buy them. There was no... There was no commercial fly time place to go to and, and buy at or a retail store. I mean, there was, you know, little scrappy feathers, but nothing much. And and Dad Ruddick was a member of the Dogwoods. And um, that was where the store actually started. And it would be open on weekends and people would come from all over from the United States, everywhere um, to, to go to the store. So then it got moved to Maple Ridge, where I grew up. And uh, we were there for about two years and then it got moved to Canada Way and in, in Boundary in Burnaby. And right. we were there for many years. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And so what do you remember what, what year the store closed? Yep. Uh, we, we closed in Burnaby, yeah. but we had a satellite store in Granville Island. We had a small store there. Oh, okay. And um, through happenstance um, and... <laughs> landlord issues we uh, we we closed that okay. and uh we opened up a um, a small store in north vancouver but do you believe we closed that in 2006 and at that point we just said we've had enough of commuting we've had enough of driving and um we we moved to camels yeah like it so i mean the fly shop must have a special place in your heart i mean i know it does with all of us but i mean I have worked in one for quite a few years and I know just being behind the counter, getting people's stories, kind of find out what's happening, what's hot, what's not. Uh, it's a special environment, isn't it? It is. It's, um, it, it wasn't, it's not just a retail store where you go in and buy milk and bread and you leave. There was a, uh, there's a camaraderie in, in, in a fly shop. Uh, people come in to, to do exactly what you say, what's hot, what's not, what's going on. Mm. And and hopefully they buy something to help you pay the rent. But um, it is an information station and you you are a constant collector of information and staying up to date. And of course, when we had the business, the internet was certainly not what it is now. There was certainly not podcasts. I'm starting to sound like a 102-year-old woman, but I really am not. But we didn't have this this yeah. type of communication then. I mean, there was phone calls. It was yeah. a whiteboard in the store saying, you know, try these lakes, they're good. Um, they were radio programs. They were, um, in the latter years, they were on our website. The fishing report would go up every three or four days. Mm. And it was an information station. And so many people learned to fish through that. And they wanted to go someplace where they got good information and that's usually where they go. Yeah. And then classes and schools all start when you, when you have a busy store like that. And I, I did a lot of teaching and a lot of instruction and it was always so, so very rewarding uh, to see people come and attend to it and then next year they were back and next year they were back and next year they were back and they really enjoyed it yeah. or seeing people that you know their goal was just to make a good cast and catching a fish was a bonus mm -hmm. well i i know that you've influenced kathy so many i've i've had quite a number of people on this show that have cited you as an influence and um I know Colette uh, has been influenced by you a lot, and we could talk about that. But who influenced you? Like, 
you know, like when I look at things like today, we can, you know, we go to YouTube or we'll, we'll watch, you know, TV or there's, like you said, we're bombarded with information. It's accessible. We used to have to go to a fly club or, 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 or the library back in the day. But who, who's kind of shaped your fly fishing? Well, that, that's, that's a good one. Um, there were not many people around that were influencers and and like you said there were books you know there was videos out um you, you i i mean it was a i i get gee that's a that's a real tough one um i'd love to say i think probably joan wolf um she mm, was a one. very very well respected primarily and influential in the fly fishing industry as a whole i'm not talking about bc i'm not talking about canada i'm not just talking about the united states i'm talking about everywhere and she was very very well respected and a fantastic angler and i thought wow this is this is really cool um and and she made a mark years ago when i mean we're talking like in the 40s and 50s when women didn't fly fish they just didn't do it so I, I think that I was very curious and very, I was influenced by that. Um, I met her a couple of times, but I was in awe of what she accomplished in her lifetime in that generation. Yeah, that's well put. And uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. So reading Fly Fishing Magazines back in the day, um, the, the, that, there's a name that I haven't heard in a while for some reason, but yeah, there's when I get the chance to talk to somebody that's been doing this a while, I feel really grateful because it, for me, there's so much to learn out there. And I think that sometimes, um, I don't want to slam anybody, but I think some of the younger generation think they know it all because they've seen it on YouTube or <laughs> it's like you had to put in the sweat equity back in the day. It's not like you just find out where it was good. It would be like, you would have to go there, get skunked, or it's like, no, there's no fish there. You know what I mean? Like you really, there was no roadmap like there is now, I feel. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it annoys me when it's almost like the people come and say, well, I'm going to go fish this river and somebody says well here's the gps coordinates and be there at 348 on a full moon and and fish up 25 degrees left north in latitude such and such and this is what you don't test farther than than uh six feet three inches or however many centimeters you want to make it and what are you learning from that even if you catch a fish what have you learned absolutely nothing absolutely nothing it's you have to put in wet equity and you have to collect i mean it's sweat equity to 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 learn and to go through so many years um experiencing and and learning by it because every time every time i fish i learn something today amen i proved point to myself i i learned something i thought yeah i just proved the new theory i had and it worked i learned something I love it. And that's, that to me is what I love about this industry. Colette, why don't you chime in? How much has Kathy influenced what you're doing out there on the water? Oh, so much. Like she referenced Joan Wolf and Kathy is the next in my mind to Joan Wolf as far as learning and what we can do and everything else. But I, this past competition, actually getting to spend time with her, even though we didn't get to spend time in the boat, but just being able to pick her brain. She showed me a map 
of Edith. I'm like, I haven't fished Edith Lake. And she showed me a map. I said, can I take a picture? And she said, yes. And we took a picture of it. She shared her knowledge. Um, yeah, just we learn new things every day. And even though Kathy totally kicked our butts that day, we still learned new things that day. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know how to put it I, into words. But, I, like, I like the yeah. way you put that. Although Kathy kicked our butt, <laughs> we still stole her yeah. map. <laughs> No, she gave us her map because we normally have maps, but Kathy was the only one that had it. But yeah. like next to Joan Wolf, as far as learning and being able to adapt, like Kathy can do that on a river. She can do that on a lake. And just being able to have her there to say, hey, what can I do here? What can I do there? Mm-hmm. Is amazing. Yeah, I love it. Well, ladies, yeah, why don't Kathy we... Kathy is my Joan Wolf. You know, ooh, there's a good quote. I like it. Um, yes. I, I, I totally know what you're saying. And uh, I know, Kathy, uh, you got anything to say about that? Uh, <laughs> you're you're going to be humble over there. <laughs> yeah, you're far too kind, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I know it's true. Um, so, hey, listen, let's talk about how this last competition went. So the first ladies' nationals. So... I mean, we all know that more and more women are hitting the water, which is awesome. I just find, I'm going to be totally honest with you guys. I ask as many women to come on the show as guys, and I barely get any takers. And I don't know why that is. But um, we had Martha Leeming on the show recently, uh, another member I know of your Canadian Nationals team, which is heading to Worlds next year. And we'll run down uh, the gals that are involved in that. But why don't, um, Kathy, tell us a little bit about the first, ladies nationals how it kind of came to be and, and and how it all went well there is a uh, organization called Fipsmoosh, which is the world organizing committee for international fly fishing competitions it's based in europe and it goes by europe rules which are far different from the western rules and they're very strict and they're a little bit well, um, you certainly wouldn't go out of your way to do them over here, that's for sure, because they're they're not that comfortable. Like you're not allowed to anchor and you can't um, use strike indicators, little bobbers on your line, and you can't use uh, finders and you can't use swivels and you can't use any electronics and you can't use a seat properly. You have to sit down to cast and you have to sit on plank boards and in boats. And you it, it is a real test of skill. And the international, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember when it started, but it's been going for quite a while. And it has always been traditionally men who create, have created a, a national team, like Canadian, French, German, um, Latvia, France, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, Wales, Scotland, United States, Japan. What am I missing, Colette? Those are... The big ones, I think. Um, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway. It's a big deal. It's it's a really big deal. And, and the location is approved by the organizing committee. And it, the competition is held there. Well, there have been very few women that have ever qualified to be on the team. And if they did, for the most part, they were picked as a spare. So if one of the other anglers broke a leg they had a spare or an alternate to kick in well i managed to qualify 
I think it was 1997 in Jackson Hole. And I, I was way over my head. I got down there and there were three women competing. And one other woman was competing. And the other one was a spare and it was me. And there were over 110 competitors. And it was pretty intimidating. And the, my biggest fear was to be dead last. Now, I, I didn't rock any boats, so to speak. But I definitely did not finish last. I was right in the middle of the pack. So I was very pleased that I held my water. There's another good one. But um, <laughs> you saw very few women compete. So I would say in the last couple of years, um, Colette, maybe you can help me with this, maybe three years or so, there's been more and more women wanting to compete um, and making their own teams. Like they're saying, okay, so if the guys want their own team and we, we get it, um, why can't we create our own women's team and, and be recognized as a, as a national team and do our own competition if we choose? And that's what's happening. And Canada did not have one. So in order to qualify, you know, the organizing committee in Team Canada is saying, okay, how do we get, who do we pick? How do we pick? You know, we can't just say, yeah, uh, you live here. That looks good. You drive a Dodge, you know, you've got a black lab, you know, you, you fished a river before. How do we qualify these people? So then that, this was the first Canadian and national women's fly fishing competition. And you could enter it, and uh, it didn't matter where you were from, um, your level of experience. Um, it was a matter of your interest and your compassion. Your compassion for it. Um, this is not to be taken lightly. I mean, if you just want to walk a river and go fish, go ahead. But this is kind of like, uh, you know, game on. Come on, this is a competition. Let's let's see what we're made out of. Mm -hmm. And the same rules apply. And that's how the team was formed. So the organizing committee looked at the scores uh, once so everything was finished and said, okay, these are the people that we would like to make up our Canadian fly fishing team. And there are five competitors um, from Alberta, BC, Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, who am I missing? I've actually got, I think well, I got the names in front of me. So obviously Colette Stroud, uh, yourself, Kathy Ruddick. Uh, Sarah Niels, um, yeah. Sam Brio, Martha Leeming, and Dora Atfield. So yes. that consists of the first ever Canadian ladies team that's heading to Worlds. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's awesome. Right. I so, love it. I love it. Yeah. So, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. First international women's fly fishing competition is being held here next year as well. And there will be, I don't know which countries are attending. Um, I know Netherlands are for sure because they were over here practicing. Um, I do believe South Africa's got a team. And it's all a matter of whether these these uh, teams can afford to come over and their funding and their um, sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But it's being held in Kamloops once again. Um, so we're they're hoping for a a good attendance and we have our national it would have been pretty embarrassing to have a international competition in canada without a canadian team yeah can you imagine that would be, yeah it just sounds wrong i i, I love i love the fact that it's in your backyard kathy you must love that 
Absolutely. Uh, when the very first Worlds I was in was 97. And then I was in another one in 2000 and another one in 99, which is 20 years ago. And I wasn't allowed to use anything that had a bead on it. And that's just, I mean, it's, it's hard to comprehend because beads are such an intricate part of all our flies now. Yeah, so we, we, we use beads now. And I mean, they, they changed their minds, but way back when it, it just, you, you weren't allowed to use them. You had to have very strict, you had to have very strict rules. And now things have totally changed. Like when did boobies start to show up in British Columbia? I mean, yeah. that's a British pattern exactly. for a specific casting off of these big, long wharves and, and beats into water that you that's all weedy and they yeah. can't they have to let it sit there so it was adapted over here so all of these strange patterns that we would never use or think about using what about a blob kathy what do you think about a blob <sighs> okay people are like oh they're daphnia patterns and i'm like no it's a pellet Patterns. Yeah, that's but what I think. In BC are that's like, oh, it's, it, it indicates Daphnia. Obviously, now they work, but had blobs not been introduced into BC, what would they be used as? Now they they're, sell they're, Daphnia fur. Well, I think they imitate free-flowing Daphnia at depths when it's not weighted, you know, when it's just free-flowing um, in the right colors. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, especially like that real pale color um, or pinkish colors or like sometimes a pale green because you pump fish and you, you get those colors. You totally get uh, Daphnia, but had blobs not been introduced to British Columbia or had nobody gone international, blobs would never have been introduced. No. Because blobs were used as a pellet pattern. Yeah, well, yes. that's what it looks like or even like an egg or, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. that's where it came from was the UK where they stock patterns, it's a blob, it replicates a pellet, and mm. now we use them as Daphnia patterns. And tell me, Colette, when you if you use a blob and it's got a bead on it, you cast it out there and it's pretty oh. still water, especially in the fall, and it goes plop. Yep. It attracts the fish. It does. But had we not been introduced to that by international waters? But never never do you, thought about it. Do you guys not right? think, though, that that has something to do with, like, those guys growing up in a hatchery and when those pellets hit the water? Right? Well, that's what I mean is initially yeah. it was used in the U.K. as a pellet pattern. Yeah. Like, yeah, hey, I, I agree. That, that's... Here's a pellet, and now we've adapted it to use. People use them with um, tungsten beads now under an yeah. indicator. Oh yeah, that's I do it. But I'll tell you what what makes me laugh is I I see all these guys and gals um on like HD lines or you know, uh fast sync lines stripping the heck out of a blob. Well, what is that? Like Well, yeah, cuz that's what you do. Well, what is that? That like that it's doesn't an look like a pattern. Yeah, I guess. Regardless if it's a pellet or it's a Daphnia, Daphnia have their special dance. So if you <laughs> retrieve it in their special dance pattern, you get them on BC flat, uh, lakes, but if you throw it in a UK lake, it's a stocked pellet, and that's where it originated from. <laughs> All I can tell you guys is I'm tying some Atlantic salmon flies right now. <laughs> well, you should have Sarah on this show because she's an Atlantic <laughs> salmon guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I love I love 
people that think outside the box when it comes to that because I think I think that's why I think a lot of the global people do really well when they come here because they're showing them something different and especially if they're stockfish if you're dealing with wild fish who knows but stockfish but they have a disadvantage because they get to deal with multiple flies on the leaf. yes that's a good point they come to BC good and point. you get to deal with like three or four flies even yep. Alberta you can have up to three flies I think it is Kathy no just three flies have- Two. Yeah. Two. But you come to BC and you only get one. Yeah. So that's where the international people have a disadvantage is, hey, you only get to use one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now what are you going to do? Well, you guys are making me nervous because I'm thinking, okay, so uh, no indicators, no swivels, no beads. Uh, I guess, no loop I guess I'm not going fishing. <laughs> no loop knots. No loop knots. Oh, come on, really? No loop knots. No competition. What? Why? No double D. Oh, that's weird. What? What? Yeah. What does that matter? That's that's interesting. I didn't know that. It, yeah, it just gives you hmm. a, more of a disadvantage. Yeah. You can only stand boat when you're landing your fish. You can only. Sorry, say that again, Kathy. You can only what? You can stand up, and the boat is when you land your fish. Wow. Yeah, well, and when I went out with John, he had the dro- drogue out there, and the uh, we were all fishing on boards, and I'm like, I miss my chair. <laughs> but it was, it was interesting. It was a learning curve. But hmm. Yeah, I learned my lesson with turning to start the motor this year. Oh. One of the first times I've had to actually operate a boat, I've gotten out of it before, but having to actually swivel on that board hmm. to start the motor was a whole new experience. Yeah, I bet. So, so let's let's talk about this this comp. So it sounds like it was an amazing competition. Now, we're, we're for I'm talking about the ladies nationals. So you guys now have a team of six, I believe is the number. Colette, Kathy, Sarah, Sam, Martha, Dora. And that's not six, very good. And one that's of six, us will be a reserve. Is one so okay. five and then one ah, reserve? Okay, that's why my math's not adding up. So, where what lakes were you fishing? Were you on Edith? We were on Leighton and Tunqua. Yep. Well, actually, Tunqua in the morning, Leighton in the afternoon. And we were supposed to be on Morgan and Six Mile. But due yep. to the hot wa- uh, weather and weed growth, they changed it about four days ahead of time. And we went to Edith and Roche. Okay, cool. Well, you know what? <laughs> Kathy, was it four days ahead of time or was it two days ahead of time? It was way too short ahead of time. It was it was like what you know you get all psyched to fish an area and you do some homework and then it gets changed so your brain's kind of ping pong ball but we made it work. Tell me, I had no cell service. Kathy showed up at Johnny's cabin and she's like, "Hey, did you get this email?" I was like, "No, I have no cell service. <laughs> I haven't had cell service for like five days." Geez, that sounds like heaven. Um, yeah, yeah, it was until all the venues changed and oh. thankfully Kathy let us know when she showed up that morning. Jeez. Um, yeah. So, so tell me, like, what the camaraderie was like between the gals on this on this competition. Like, okay, so there's there's let's say five plus a spare. How many how many women actually took part in the qualification? First off, ten was Kathy. I think was there ten or eight. There was, was eight of us eight. all together. It was eight, and then we had a cancellation out of Ontario. There was yeah. a team that was from Ontario Council. I don't know what the conditions were, whether they had COVID or what. So it was a it was a small group, but it was it was competitive. Yeah. Um 
The people were in the mode, but it wasn't as competitive as it is in the international. Um, right. We were, I, I think the people like Colette and myself and others that had some experience, we'd be in the boat and we'd be catching fish and it would be this, <laughs> this pity for the other person who was just lost, you know, like they, they were trying so hard and they were missing fish and you would finally say, well, you might want to try this, you know, when they put yeah. that on it. At least they'd get a fish. You wanted to, it was a fine line between telling people what you were using because they could then, in theory, beat you, you know, mm-hmm. because you've told them what you're doing. And yet trying to help somebody um, because they had the guts to show up and they had the tenacity to try and compete in something this this significant. Well, that, that's one yeah. thing that strikes me, uh, guys, about the competitive scene, because I'm, I've had a lot of um, comp anglers on this show. Cause, and, and just so you know, the reason I do that is uh, we all have so much to learn, but I always think that the competitions is kind of more cutting edge. So in other words, you find out about these patterns first, you find out about these styles of fishing first. And I think it's it's probably the easiest way we can, as am, amateur anglers, as someone that just does it for fun, can up our game. That, and and but w- one thing I never realized until I started talking to the uh, you know the John Wilkinsons, you guys, the John, John Horsey. the John Horses, and he was part of getting Martha into competitive angling. Oh, John's amazing. Yeah, he's he, amazing. He is. Yeah, I've never met him, but I think Kathy has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a yeah. He's a great and we had really? we had your buddy Dave Downey on um the the competition scene is friendly which is weird when you talk the world of sports anything competitive usually it's very secretive but there seems to me there is some sharing on some level Well I don't know Kathy if you want to speak to this one or if you want me to speak to this one Well I think there's sharing and there's camaraderie and support. But when you're in the boat competing with somebody else and it, when it gets down to the world, it, it's, um, it's hardcore. Um, you, you're, you're, you get the nerves on you. You want to do really well. You haven't done all this homework and practice and you get wound up and you want to do really well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there is no, no sharing with the other guy in the boat, <laughs> yeah. but with, with your team members, um, yeah. like now, cause we were all individually competing. Usually you're competing as a team and you go back every night and everybody downloads all their frustrations and what flies were working well. And you, you feel better, you feel better, mm. but, um, your team members do support you, but in in the actual competition, it's it's hardcore, and and one of the and Colette can comment to this too. I mean, I was very surprised. I taught a lot of of people how to fly fish, and I taught women how to fly fish, and I did ladies only courses in the past, and I found the attitude and the involvement in them pretty minimal. They were going there because the boyfriends didn't want to teach them or the husbands and they oh, didn't want to do hang gliding. So maybe they did fly fishing this weekend. They didn't have that 
core desire, like guttural, I want to learn how to fly fish and this is really cool and I want to get my hands dirty and I want to pick up fish. And mm-hmm. in, in, in times gone by, they don't, they don't want to walk in water, they want to pick up a dead fish. They didn't, didn't want to do anything like that. And it's totally changed. Yeah. And you're seeing people that are just 110% involved in it and proud of what they do. Um, the fact that they can cast a line out, tie their own flies on, catch fish, and be self-sufficient, and it's just them and nature has has totally changed. And I think that's that's a big, big factor. And then you add the competition part of it in. That's a whole different level. Yeah. That it goes a whole different level. So the peace and tranquility and the, the zen of it all goes out the window because you're like, okay, game on. We're going to win this thing with fly fishing. And yeah. a lot of people disagree. A lot of people do. No, I, I, yeah, th- I, I think, think that was. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Mark. I'm going to interrupt you right now, but I think that was the biggest thing with this nationals. Is originally we had 14 women who were going to come, and then we ended up with eight. So each one of us, four experienced women, so Kathy, myself, Aggie, and Martha, all got to have these other four inexperienced women in the boats with us, whether they had lake experience. I, I don't think a lot of them had lake experience. No, no. And didn't. most of them were rivers, like Sarah's a, a river guide, and Sarah or Sam was like, no, I'm mostly just used to um, going onto the river, but I've recently gotten into nymphing, and she has the nymphing hook sets, and being able to coach each and every one of them, to have them pass through our boat was a huge experience, but to have them have that competitive spirit in them to be, okay, well, yeah, we get to go back to shore and share what we used and what we did and everything else, but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, we don't do that. We don't share it. I have two flies on my boat bag that are my dog flies, and I said to the girls, (laughs) every one of the ladies in my boat, I was like, just so you know, normally I go out with this fly going out and I come back with this fly coming in because we don't share that stuff when we're out but just the camaraderie with the women that were excited about sharing that sport with us and wanting to learn and being able to teach them and the absorption rate of them like Sam and I blanked Edith Lake and Kathy kicked our asses and yes you should use kicked our asses on the (laughs) podcast Sam and I, we thought it through. Todd comes out on the dock, and you can also use this. Todd comes out on the public launch, and I'm out in the boat with Sam, who's new, and he's like, hey, Colette, is this your spare rods in your net? I was like, oh, yes, it is. Now I get to try to get to the boat dock and not knock Todd Oshie into the lake while trying to maneuver the boat, because one of the first times I've actually operated during a competition, so I was nervous about <laughs> that too. Yeah, but I love it. So got I, everything in the boat. Colette, went back out. They're I, observing us the whole time. Right. I need I need clarification on when you say dog flies on your boat. <laughs> so are you telling? Oh, dock. dock. I thought you said dog, dog flies. flies. So I thought maybe you so were like no, throwing you, a curveball. You curve leave ball. the dock with a fly on, and right. it's not the fly you're going to use. Prior to just the bell ringing where you start, you change your fly into the one you're actually going to use. Yeah, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah. But uh, 
Okay, interesting. Not dog flies. Is this yeah. like a mind game? Is this something everybody does? It's totally a mind game. You're like, hey, I'm going to use this pink salmon fly. That's my first fly. Wow. They all know you're full of crap when you leave the dock and you have that fly on. You're going to change it immediately right before you cast out on the first cast. That's uh, me and my buddy make names up for flies that don't even exist. Like he'd be like, what do you use? And I'm like the velvet clink hammer. And so he, he basically knows it's not that it's, but yeah, that's, I never thought of that. It's a visual thing. It's kind of like golf. When you actually look at the person's golf bag and say, okay, they hit a six iron on this tee. Mm. Yeah. You don't want people to know what you're using when you're leaving. So you just throw on a dock fly. Ah. Or, or you put a fly on, I wrap it around my reel and I put a pouch over my reel. Or, or you could do what Kathy does, which is, way easier but it doesn't mess with people's heads as so much as so. you guys are killing me because now this but people is, this always is watch for the fly like what oh, yeah. fly she's gonna cast do you know i remember john horsey saying the fly doesn't matter he, 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 it does if you put a salmon fly on. No, but he, he, he was always going like, okay, it matters with the zone, the depth, how you're stripping it. And I always thought that was a fascinating thing because I think amateurs, as amateur fly fishers, which most of us are, we get tight, caught up in the patterns. And, and We're still amateurs, Mark. We still learn every day when we're yeah, with somebody. Yeah, but you guys are... You guys are Yes, you're maybe amateurs, but when I say amateurs, I'm talking about weekend warriors here. I'm not talking about people that are basically, you know, either guiding or eating, sleeping, living, fly fishing. Like to me, you guys are, you're out there all the time and you're learning things that most of us don't know sooner. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me. I'm going to put some dock flies on next time. Screw my buddy up. I love it. I just learned, I, I just learned something. Hey, be careful with your dog fly, though, because one time I had a dog fly. It was a boatman pattern. I think it was oh, a, it's called a 24-hour boatman. Yeah. It has an epoxy back on it. And all that happened was the epoxy came loose, so it spun around my <laughs> fly line. And I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not going to use this fly. And somebody kicked my butt using it because they found a better way to put the epoxy on. Yeah. There's so many tricks and tips. How okay, I'm going to ask you guys a weird one. Like how important is the tippet that you're using? Sometimes I feel like tippet is everything. Amazingly important. And I'll tell you a good experience. Sarah and I were on Roche and it was nonstop. Like we had to come off the public or the private dock, drift into the bay there. We both lost fish, go into this little channel. And I think I, so I think I didn't take a picture of my scorecard. I should have, but I think my flies were, my fish were at like 2.12 PM, 2.13 PM, 2.14 PM and 2.17 PM. Hmm. And it's like, bang, bang, bang. And Sarah was mad. She's like, stop it. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is what competition is like. And then at one point, even though I'm using, um, fluorocarbon, yeah. I wasn't getting a hit or a fish. I was like, I got to check my leader. And I checked my tippet. It was milky. And it was milky because it had been stretched so much. Hmm. So always check your fly if you lose a fish or you're getting hit with fish and you're not hooking up. Check your hook. And if something happens, always check your leader. But I believe in fluorocarbon 
Yeah. 100%. I was out fishing with my dad one day, probably the last day I fished with him because he won't fish with me anymore. But the only difference in chronomid fishing was we checked our depth, we checked our fly, we checked everything. Hmm. Last, like, an hour of fishing, I was like, wait a second, you're using mono, I'm using fluoro. And that fluoro makes a huge difference depending if you're in calm water or, like, what do you call it when it's, like, stirred up water? Oh, like murky? Murky water. Or not even murky water, just like Colored, stirred up water. Like it throws, mono throws a bigger shadow than what fluoro does. And that was the biggest difference with my dad and I. Like, we couldn't even, I couldn't even take a bite of a sandwich I had a fish on. <laughs> and he was getting so mad. But same thing with Sarah and I. I was like, I'm not getting fish. I pull my leader out. I was like, oh, it's been stretched too much. It's too milky. Check your fly, check your leader all the time. But I always use fluoro. Yeah. What about you, Kathy? Are you a big fluoro fan? I I use fluoro. I don't necessarily buy a whole fluoro tapered leader, or I'll use um, just regular monofilament. But if I'm using a swivel, swivel, or even without a swivel, I'll use t- uh, fluorocarbon tippet for sure. Hmm. Um, I really believe in it. Um, it you know for chronomids and stuff, I think it helps push the small flies down just that little bit deeper. Um, it is really translucent. I mean, it's very, very clear. Uh, but as far as like checking your leader, especially with Colette saying she's right in the weeds, that's, that's another thing fish do. If you get a fish one right after the other, or they, they bury their heads down in those weeds and they'll put a fray on your leader and you, you need to look at it or feel it. And, you know, wind knots, but it, that, that fogginess, it, it comes from fraying or scratching or whatever, and it'll put them off. That's or, a or great you, tip. Oh, I love how Kathy uses the term wind knot. Oh yeah, wind knot. Is that's it a wind yeah. knot? Wind knot. Yeah, that's it. Wind knot. Yeah. No, what what's it oh, called, Kathy? Wind knot. Yeah. It's it's a wing knot. A wing, wing knot. knot. Yeah. Wing like knot. don't do that again because you just cause a tangle in your line. Oh. Well, I call that something totally different, but I can't repeat it right now. I call that, ah, I fucked up that time. <laughs> <laughs> Better do it, it better next time. You, you know what's funny is I'm I'm super lazy, so if I get a little wind knot, some, unless it's too close to the fly, I don't even worry about it, but now you got me rethinking <sighs> some things because I get what you're saying there with the, that's a great tip, like a little bit of fray in the leader, a little stretch, maybe you hit a rock or a weed or a whatever. That's a good point. <laughs> It depends on where you're fishing because rivers are different. But a lake, definitely, if you've been in the weeds too much, you're using fluorocarbon, or you got too many big fish. Yeah. Which, with the timing of mine, that was definitely what it was, was just stretch. And I'm like, no, oh, when I pulled my leader up, I was like, oh, it's milky because it's been stretched. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. We have. And Sarah a hundred... and I have a good video. Yeah. From, I think. Yeah, Ken got a good video of me trying to get my fly off the reeds, and Sarah landed a fish. That's cool. Yeah, it's a funny game, though. Sometimes I think we overthink it, and other times I think we just don't don't think enough. It's and it's frustrating for me because I'll, I'll tell you something that drives me nuts: is I'll be out there with Buddy, and we're fishing the same fly maybe not the same leader and he's kicking butt and and we're at the same depth 
I, sometimes it's like, what is happening? Is it because he gassed up the truck or is it, do you know what I mean? It's like, there's so many variables that I think, the, I'm sure the fish see that we don't even think of. Yeah, I think they try to trick us because the one day with my dad, like I say, we were exact same depth, exact same fly. The only difference when we found at the end of the day was mono to fluoro. Mm. But would it? have made a difference throughout the day? We don't know, because we only found out in the last half hour. Well, and I think even, like, as fly tires, for me, that's where, I like, no two flies are exactly the same, even if they're tied commercially. There's small differences. They're minute, but maybe the fish notice these things. Yeah, I, I think they do. I mean, even the difference from your knot or your swivel to your fly can make a big difference. I think that becomes visible or it can pick up weeds, you know, like a knot uh, will pick up weeds that you don't ever see and bring mm-hmm. it up. It'll put it off. So I had my, my cousin out fishing. I was trying to teach her how to fly fish this summer and she was getting so frustrated. I mean, I gave her the same fly, I gave her the same everything. And I said, okay, let's measure your leader. And the only difference was my tippet was probably 14 inches 15 inches longer than hers hmm. and we sure tip it and she was into fish so what what's that wow you know, that's like, that's cool that's that subtle i love those little learning moments though because that that's where we learn right it's like okay i've seen this before that's good stuff put it in the vault we have on the show today Colette Stroud, competitive fly fisher, and Kathy Ruddock, also competitive fly fisher, uh, fly, fly tying instructor, fly fishing instructor, uh, trip organizer. We're talking about the uh, First Ladies Nationals that just happened in Canada, and now we've got the Worlds coming up next year in, in this country, in the Kamloops region. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. What do you... Kathy, what does it mean to you to be involved with this group for the first kind of go-around? I'm exceptionally proud to be associated with the ladies and the girls that I've met. I I was very, very concerned about getting this all going and wondering how dedicated and how serious they all were. And after the five days I was like this is cool this is this is we're going to kick some butt here we've got some really good good anglers not not okay I can go catch a fish I'm talking about really good anglers that are paying attention to everything and hardcore and I thought this is awesome I'm I'm very proud to be associated with all, all these ladies all these girls I love it is there and I, and Colette is familiar with my questions, but one one thing I like to ask on the show, Kathy, and you don't, I don't expect you to give away the the bank, but is there one go to fly pattern for you that you just can't live without on still water? Well, that's food for thought. Well, we could always say a scud because we all go for that. <laughs> Can we fall for the scud? What are you doing? There's scuds everywhere. Oh, oh my God, there's scuds. What about a pink I Atlantic think, salmon fly? Yeah, a pink-colored <laughs> rabbit Atlantic salmon fly. I think one of the best, oh, I'm saying it out loud, um, is a vampire leech. I really, really believe in that. I mean, it's great. Toddle act. like that. Yeah, 24-7. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I I used to think that it only tended to work in the spring with the fluorescent green head, and you can tie it with the, I think it's Darth Vader, the red head. But yeah. I, I I've tried chartreuse. I've tried 
everything is a blank saver. Yeah. Oh, it is. It never works for me. We, yeah. I fish that all the time, especially in stain yeah. stained water with the chartreuse. I feel is like just gold. Yeah, there used to be a book we used to, oh, I, I probably still have it in my library, and it was entitled What Fish See. Hmm. And it, it's a great book. Like, what a fish see? If you think you're seeing what we're seeing, forget it. <laughs> it, it it's not. I mean, in the blackest water, you're supposed to use black flies or dark, dark purple. So, you know, if it's bright, you're supposed to put on uh, sparkly flies, you know? So it's it's completely different. So what do fish see down there? Well, I don't know what it is, but they like chartreuse. Oh yeah, and purple, purple, black and, and purple. purple. Jeez, purple, black, chartreuse. Yes, yeah, that's hitting some stops for sure. I often, yeah. I, I said this on the show, like I just went back to my my box and I retied everything I had in purple and black, and I swear <laughs> it was the smartest thing I ever did. It works. It doesn't matter. Think of any fly, you tie it in purple and black, it's gonna slay, at some point. Yep. But, yep. And I think that has to do with that UV spectrum because I, I, I think I read that. I, I've heard that uh, talk you're talking about there, Kathy, like what a fish see in the UV spectrum and all that. And I think purple and black are a couple that are uh, very visible to them, right? Exceptionally, exceptionally. And I do believe two of the most iridescent or reflective natural fur or feathers is a polar bear hmm. jungle cock and i do believe sorry i missed that last one you said kathy you cut out there what was the last one i'm sorry it's polar bear yeah jungle cock eyes which you can't get anymore and seal fur oh yeah yeah they all have like a real iridescence to them not just shiny they they have an, an iridescence that we don't see yeah and unless you have a plethora of or archaic fly time supplies like we do, Kathy. Maybe. Uh, yep. Well, I don't <laughs> I'm I... not gonna give away your age, but I'm just gonna say I have very few bits of seal fur left. Yeah, I got quite a I... bit. I got polar bear. Yeah, I did. I got you. polar bear. I got polar bear. I... But the one thing I have seal of is seal fur. I check my inventory, but might do some. No, training. no, you don't have to check your inventory. I'm just saying it's one material that we can't pass down. No, nope. we ain't giving it up if we got it. No, it's not easy to work with you know, dubbing. But no, nice that's box. it's no. funny you said that. I was just going to say that the one thing that always stopped me from using it, and the only reason I have any of it, is because I hated working with it. Yeah. Oh. It's terrible. It's terrible. Awful. It's like just trying to put that on a thread and it just goes the opposite direction. Yeah, it doesn't it like... It doesn't do what you want it to do, no. ever. No, it's got an exceptionally small amount and you can whip a loop and you're successful. Well, you guys are giving me some good ideas here for the winter for tying. So do both of you do a lot of fly tying? Kathy, let's start with you. Are you a big tire? I I'm a, I'm a tire, but I haven't tied as much as I, I used to. Um, I, I have far too many flies, but um, I was tying some flies last night just because, believe it or not, out of the 10,000 flies I have downstairs, I couldn't find the right fly pattern, so I actually had to tie some patterns up. I enjoy it. It's very creative, and it's yeah. rewarding to tie your own fly and catch a fish on it, and that's what got me into fly fishing in the first place. What about you, Colette? Are you, you spending much time at the Vice? Well, we all know I hate tying flies, but I will when I have to. And <laughs> we actually just totally renovated our 
fly fishing room because Rob and I don't have kids, so we have a spare room. It's our fly tying room. Awesome. Still don't enjoy it, but I'll do it when I have to. And thankfully, when I went to the nationals for the ladies' nationals, I only had to get a couple flies from my husband. And when I opened the box of the ones he kindly gave me, most of them I had already given him. <laughs> <laughs> but I still don't enjoy it. It's not something I find enjoyment in. Interesting. I'll do it because I have to. Yeah, it's like a tool, right? Yeah, I'll do it because I have to, because I have to have them in my box. But ask me in three months, and I'll be like, yeah, I got all these experiments. Yeah, well, that's okay. that's my problem with the one-offs. It's just crazy. As I, I often think that if you just tweak it a little bit, and let's face it, that's all we're doing these days is tweaking something that's been done before. But whether you find a new material, like we were just talking about seal fur, if you happen to have some kicking around or something a little different, I think that, Sometimes that's kind of the secret to success is just a slight variation that you talk about the vampire leech, just twist something up a little different. And sometimes that's the ticket. I think most people that fly fish know this, but the, the natural materials move naturally in the water. So if you're fishing marabou, it's going to have that move to it. But when you go to a synthetic, it just doesn't have that wriggle. And I think that's uh, that's something that's kind of understated in our craft. Like maybe you use a balance of something that's artificial, and but you need that real. You need that realism. You know, some kind of natural material for the movement. I think. And you do, and you heard me push Dave Downey's marabou because it's hand picked and hand dyed. Oh yeah. You do have to have that natural movement, but when people listen to TikTok videos or whatever else they're listening to and they're like, oh, you just go to the craft store and you can buy marabou and tinsel and, oh, look, Christmas materials on sale so you can get this chenille flash. We need to be aware that there's a difference between something that's been supplied by somebody and something, even though it costs more money than a dollar ninety-nine for 300 meters, it makes a difference. We are also not competitive, but we also have fish futures in mind. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. So, so um, when are the world championships? So I know they're coming up, what, about a year from now, guys? Yeah, the last weekend in September. I think it's the 24th again. Okay. And, and so... Um, is there going to be kind of some practice? I assume there's practice sessions where everybody can kind of get familiar with the water before the real show starts. There is a blackout period, I do believe, of 60 days that you cannot fish the competitive waters. Okay. So you can fish like waters. You can fish similar waters. You can fish waters that are of the same elevation, same conditions, but not the actual venue. That being said, there's usually, with the international, it's usually one or two days practice on part of the venue for anglers. Right. Hmm. So yeah, the coaches from each province will work with the competitors that are coming up for the world in like temperature waters, both rivers and still waters. And then we do get practice sessions prior to the event. 
Yeah, good stuff. Well, I'm so excited for you guys that uh, this is going ahead. You're part of the team. I mean, you. it's got to feel, and this is something I ask on the show, Like, and I want to ask you both this. Where, where are we at as a group, fly fishers? Like, Kathy, you've been doing this a long time. You've been in and around the industry for a very long time. How do you... Where, where are we at as fly fishers? Like I always, and the reason I ask that is I think when a river runs through, it came out, everybody jumped into it. It felt like it was growing, and then it seemed to kind of recess back. And the last three, four, five, ten years, it feels like there's a lot of people on the water. There is a lot of people on the water. I mean, I I see the difference both, and I and I. I look back and say, okay, what is it? I mean, when the River Runs Through It movie came out, everybody jumped on. Everybody, every shop owner in the world wanted another movie like that made because everybody wanted to experience it. So it was, that was fantastic. Um, but, you know, people stuck with it. People didn't stick with it. Um, it exposed the industry to a lot of people. I think historically it was just looked at as a rich man's sport. And that's a European thing that's hung over because you have to pay to fish everywhere. That's one of the wonderful things we have where we live. We don't have to pay to fish. <laughs> just buy your license and go fish. And um, I think that it's because it's, it's so accessible. I think the population in greater Vancouver is getting to the point now where people are maybe migrating to fish in the interior of the province and going further. I think that the the perhaps, uh, but you know the the terrible issues with the salmon returning have also affected many people going salmon fishing, and they're saying I don't want to do it anymore, or it's just not what it used to be, or I can't be bothered, and they want to now fish the freshwater, so the pressures come in inland. But there's a lot more people out there, and what I've noticed is the percentage of people fly fishing. It's not just people fishing with lures and gang trolls, which we all did when we were growing up, but it's the amount of people fly fishing. And I'm like, wow, that, that's really cool. I, I think that's that's really good that people are taking that, that kind of interest in it. And I think with it comes a, a respect because it's not a, a gut of an eat'em sport. I mean, people are into fly fishing for different reasons. They, they just like going out and catching the fish, maybe trying to fly or not, but just being able to make a cast and figure out what the fish are eating and bringing it in and maybe letting it go is that that's what they want now. That's, yeah. that's their level of success. That's what they define as success. Hmm. Colette, what do you think? Where are we at? Well, I, obviously we've seen an increase in fly fishing interest, especially with women. So hopefully we can get more of them in the competitive side of things, but I do feel, I mean, sorry, Kathy, but you've been in it a lot longer than I have and have coached, and you gave us a crying speech during the closing ceremonies, which I'm hopeful that you have Sam as your adoptive daughter. But anyways, <laughs> there has been so many people since, since COVID hit, and I think even prior to that where social media and everything else has just brought this on as a fad. And a lot of people are out there just to get that picture, that picture-perfect moment. And that's not what it's about. It's about going out there and failing and learning and continuing and exploring. And so much of social media has been like, hey, where do I go? 
Um, I'm going here. What ply should I use? Hey, I'm going here. Where should I go? We spent so many years exploring and learning and trying different ply patterns that, hey, let's go back to the archaic days of find it out yourself. So many people depend on other people to tell them what to do, where to go, um, what spot to anchor in, um, all of these other things. And I can say that this learning experience for me with the Women's Nationals, with the people that we spent time with, they didn't ask us that. There was a few that were unfamiliar, but at the same time, they're learning to read water. They're learning all of these other things from us. And I think that's what you need to do. You can't just expect someone to tell you where to go and what to do and what fly to use. Mm. Yeah. You need to figure it out yourself. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. <laughs> I agree. you got to earn it a little bit. Um, yeah, you, you do have to earn it. And I, more so in COVID times where people are like, okay, yeah, tell me what to do. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to spend the time and learn it because otherwise you're not learning. You, you, you just aren't learning. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't stick. Um, exactly. Like oh, we come from times of pre-internet and we figured it out ourselves before. We'll continue to do it, but you have to know the basics. Just know the basics of what you need to do and ask people. Hmm. And if somebody on the water isn't willing to tell you that, they shouldn't be on the water. Yeah, I get that. I, I I agree. I love it when, and I can't tell you how many times I've given flies to people or vice versa. And it's just like, for me, that sharing, I think most fly fishers want to see people do well. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of putting competition aside. And even then it's probably true. Like you say, you don't want somebody in your boat that's not catching anything either. Um, it's a kindred spirit kind of thing. I, one thing I want to ask you, and I, I know I've asked you this in the past, Colette, but Kathy... Why do you do this? And and I know this is a this is a, this is a crazy question, but let me let me verbalize it. Colette's losing it. Let me to kick Colette's butt. But tell me, what does fly fishing do for you? In your words, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. What what does it do for me? In my words, keeps me centered. I've been doing this for so long. I've done different types. I've done different levels. I've done salt water. I've done fresh water. I've done, I, I, you know, done flies and I got my boat to get, it's the whole package. It's my passion. I can't imagine myself not fishing. Even if I end up in a wheelchair somewhere, I'm going to be fishing. I, I, it just, it fills my soul. Somebody said to me once, not too long ago, when's the last time you were out fishing? I said, well, I've been so darn busy. I've been doing this. And said, you need to go fishing. <laughs> we we yeah. highly recommend instead of taking medication, you go fishing. You can go out there and get some fishing. <laughs> You're so much better to deal with after you've been out. <laughs> that really bothered me. And I think, God, do I turn into like Dracula or something when uh, I'm not fishing? I can when so... I get I can so relate to that. I, sorry, I'll let you keep going. But somebody on the show said to me, it's not a need to or a want to. It's a have to. Yeah. You know? I'm getting cranky because it's coming into November and I'm like, damn it. I'm going to have to put the boat away pretty soon, even if I am freezing my butt off. But that just flips me over to a different, you know, i got to 
clean wines and fix yeah. rods and start get ready for the next year and we're looking forward to it or maybe go fishing in a tropical destination which is really nice or mm-hmm. but it's it's too much in my soul now to never fish again sometimes i'm like okay i'm fishing too much because yeah. my, i can't do that because my fingers are bleeding and i'm thinking maybe i should take a break but um <laughs> i just really like it 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 gives me full circle and every time i catch a fish i'm i'm like wow i caught another fish that's cool yeah. so it just fills my soul i think um i had somebody ask me once when's the last time you went on vacation and didn't fish hmm. and I honestly looked at them when i went can't remember <laughs> can't remember can't remember oh well, that's a good answer um colette um i know we've kind of treaded this before but uh what does it do for you the same thing as cast and doing stuff around the property and people are like oh when did you last go fishing like uh yesterday or a week ago it's the week ago that gets them because they're like you need to go dead on the last podcast rob and i typically do an annual trip just to get away from the winter around fishing we can spend time with other friends who have other goals in mind, but, and that's what grounds us. That's what, like, even it's just exploring. I love Going it. Going to a lake we don't know, or a country we don't know, just unknown water. Yeah, for sure. Well, ladies, thanks so much for doing this. I'm so excited what you guys are up to with, with Team Canada Fly Fishing uh, and and the World Championships. And I wish you, you won't need it, but I wish you the best. And uh, let's stay in touch. And, and maybe before the, maybe before uh, this time next year, we can have a chin wag and see, see where the team's at and, and what you guys have been up to. Absolutely. I, I want to actually get you in touch with some of the new girls that haven't experienced it before, got to experience it, and now they have the excitement of, yes, let's go do this. I love it. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Kathy. Awesome to talk to you guys. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.